Good morning. morning. There it is. My name is Eric Solomon. I'm one of the preaching pastors here at Wheaton Bible Church. Specifically, I get to be the campus pastor here at TVC. And this morning, we are entering our fourth week of a sermon series that we've entitled Dear Church, a pastor's letter to the church. And as Melissa mentioned, thinking about uh, our celebration, as we begin a new ministry year, get closer to this five-year anniversary this September, as we prepare to celebrate God's faithfulness to us over the years and get ready for what he's calling us to next, we're taking some time in this sermon series over these few weeks to be reminded of and challenged by what God has called us to as his people, what it is that should define us as citizens of the kingdom of God who God has saved us to be, who God has commanded us to be. These sermons are the content of our prayers for you as your pastors across all of our campuses. Prayers of becoming who God has already said we are, but we still need to grow into. His kingdom citizens that live out his good news in a world that desperately needs it, like we desperately needed it. Now, These defining characteristics that I'm talking about, they're all over Scripture, but if you've been here the last few weeks, you know that I've chosen for us to go through some some parables in the Gospel of Luke to help us understand what it is that we as a church body should be, what we're praying for, for our church community to be. These parables, these stories are told by King Jesus not just to entertain, but to provoke, to draw us in and provoke transformation, kingdom lives that are transformed by the Gospel. And so I'm going to run through it if you haven't been with us. uh, The last few weeks, we've looked at the parable of the sower and the seeds, which provoked us to be people of God's word, people who hear and obey God's word in patient perseverance. We looked at the parable of the lost, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and two lost sons that, that, that provoke us to be people of joy at repentance. These provocative scenes challenge us to be uh, those who actually have joy at the repentance of lost sinners, no matter what kind of lost they are. Last week, we talked about the parable of two debtors, told us that we are people of worship, extravagant worship in response to the extravagant love of God. And this week, we're in our fourth parable, a parable that marks us, defines us as people of mercy, because this morning, we're in the parable of the Good Samaritan. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got Bibles in the cart on the back, and if you don't have a Bible at all, I want you to take one of those. Those are our gifts to you. And if you're joining us online, I want to also say welcome. I'm really glad you're here with us in the middle of all this. We're glad that we can still connect in this way. And I want to encourage you to participate in our service. And right now, one of the ways to participate is to open up your Bibles with us. And if you would, anyone online or here on campus, if you're able, please stand as we read from God's Word, starting in Luke 10, 25. People of God, would you listen to the Word of God? On one occasion... An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and Who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. 
so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is God's word. You may be seated. God, we're grateful for your word, and we trust that your word is going to change us this morning. And so I pray that as we submit to your word, that you, by your spirit, would make us look more like Jesus. Amen. Well, I want you to flash back with me to 1973. In New Jersey, on the campus of Princeton University, there were two social psychologists experimenting with mercy. They wanted to answer the question, why do people do good things for others? In other words, why do people show mercy? They answered the question in a paper that they entitled, From Jerusalem to Jericho. And in that paper, they documented the findings of their mercy experiment, and here's what they did. They invited Princeton Theological Seminary students, people studying to be faith leaders, to, to come to a building and fill out some surveys with a researcher. Now, these weren't decoy surveys. They were actually setting a baseline about the reasons for these students to why they're pursuing ministry as part of the, the experiment. But after they finished, they were told to prepare a, a short, emphasis on short, sermon on the Good Samaritan. Then they were told that they needed to go to a building nearby to preach that sermon, but they were all told different things. There was actually three categories of people. At random, some of the participants were told that they had lots of time to get to where they were going. Another group was told, oh, you're, you're on time, but, but you got to get going so you're not late. And then there was a third group that said, hey, you're already late. You really need to get moving. But here's the setup, though. On the way to that other building, cutting through an alley, they would encounter a person lying in that alley, needing help. What would they do? Well, these researchers found that over half about 60% of the students did not stop to help. On their way to preach a story that commands mercy, these students struggled to show mercy. But the research actually goes further and explains why. Remember the, question, the, the way that they were told that they needed to get to the building? The problem was time. Of the group, early, on time, late, 63% of those who thought they were early stopped to help. Only 45% of those who thought they were on time stopped, and only 10% of those who thought they were late stopped to help this man. They just didn't have time to show mercy. Now, like Melissa said, she wanted to be real, so she asked if this was family, so she already got that out of the way, but I'm also going to be real this morning, because I, I, I need to show some vulnerability and confess before we step into this passage that I struggle myself to show mercy to others. There's a lot of logic that goes into when and why I refuse to help someone in need. At least logic is what I call it. At times in my life, it's gotten so bad that I actually started to refuse to carry cash with me just so that I stopped feeling guilty about rolling up the window and trying not to make eye contact. It's how wicked my heart is. It's also why I need this passage. It's why I believe we as a community 
need to hear this passage, need this parable to confront us, convict us, encourage us even. It's why even if you're not a Christian this morning, I think you need this passage because you need to know that this is not just about being good. It's not just about being a better person, that you can see like we have seen here and be re- that we need to be reminded of constantly, that we are all broken and in need of help, not just physically, emotionally, and mentally, but spiritually as well. And all of that matters to God. You see, there, there's something about free mercy, something about unlimited mercy that's shown to poor and broken sinners like us, like all of us, that should make us the most merciful people in the world. And yet, if we're honest, a lot of us struggle with this, struggle with how to do this. And too often when we get into this parable, this parable gets turned into something like a sledgehammer. Do better because you're really bad at doing mercy, so, so you got to get on that. But other times it's also turned into something as weightless as confetti. Don't worry so much. What people really need is the message of the gospel. Everything else is secondary. You can even ignore that so long as you focus on people's souls. What I want for us this morning is that we are neither crushed under the weight of this parable because there's grace, there's mercy. After all, that's what we're talking about. But that we don't walk out of here without carrying some of the weight of this parable. Because Jesus tells this story to disrupt our lives, to interrupt us, to change us. To make us see people and see ourselves. This, this parable, I'll be honest, is annoying. And I think Jesus wants it to be. So that we would not avert our eyes when we see someone in need. His kingdom is all about gospel transformation that goes from person to person, changing not just people, but all of creation. And that's the way that this parable gets at that reality is by telling us to love with everything we've got. And this morning, as we go through this text, this is what I'm trying to persuade you of. This is what I'm trying to persuade my heart of. This is what I think the Bible is trying to persuade us of as a community. That God defines his kingdom people as people who love with everything they've got. Love with all of who God made us to be and is remaking us to be by his Holy Spirit because of the gospel. To love as spirit-empowered and spirit-dependent people that follow a merciful Savior who gave everything for us. To love as people who not only receive the gospel but communicate the gospel with every resource, every action, and every word. And the way this text works to persuade us of this is by setting before us two love commands that are intertwined and point the way to eternal life. And then telling a story that shatters the boundaries that we tend to place around those commands. So I only have two points this morning. And they're actually marked in the text by the questions of a lawyer that's trying to test Jesus. Point number one, love your God and love your neighbor. Point number two, instead of looking for your neighbor, be a neighbor. The lawyer asks two questions and Jesus gives two answers in his own Jesus kind of way. And they can be summed up, I think, in these two points. Love your God and love your neighbor. And instead of looking for your neighbor, be a neighbor. So I'm going to start with that first one. Love your God and love your neighbor. There are other places in the gospel that describe these, the two commands we're going to get here as the two greatest commands in all of Scripture. The two most important things that should direct the kingdom lives of God's kingdom citizens. Together, these commands are the overriding reality that determines all of our kingdom actions. And look at how the text does that. Look at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
a lawyer steps up out of nowhere, it steps up to Jesus, and he asks a question. Now, when you hear expert in the law, this isn't one for one how we think about lawyers. This is an expert in the law of God. So this is kind of like a, a lawyer theologian, who is probably the worst combination of people who like to argue, who knows the law of God back to front and spends all day every day talking about and arguing about what God meant when he said this or that. But in a positive light, this is a man that is consumed by the righteous order that God has designed the world with. And so he steps up to Jesus and he asks him a question. A question asked like only someone who has spent his life studying law can ask as a test. God's law was meant to lead to life like the psalmist sings. So this man is asking for application. Jesus, how do you see it? What do I need to do in order to get this eternal life that we keep singing about in synagogue? Well, Jesus' answer is as brilliant as it is annoying because he doesn't answer. He actually just asks him questions. You ever have a teacher like that? Just wouldn't answer your question. I just, I just want to know what I'm asking. And they would say, well, what do you think about this? What is written in the law? How do you read it? Mr. Lawyer, theologian, what do you think the law says? And so he answers in two parts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And I'll pause here before his second answer because the lawyer here in this moment is repeating one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. It's called the Shema. And it's found in Deuteronomy 6, which basically amounts to love God with everything you have. From the core of your desires and being to your physical and mental strength. With everything. Love the one true God truly. Love the Creator our Father, our Savior, our King, with absolutely everything we have. But I want you to notice when we talk about everything we have, that love for God is definitely more than spiritual. It is not less than spiritual. It does not avoid the soul, but it includes way more than the soul because if you haven't noticed, we humans are way more than just a soul. We are more than time capsules for a soul just trying to get out. We're more than a cargo ship container for the soul that just needs to be delivered through time into eternity. God made us as whole beings, heart, soul, body, and mind. And we only love God completely when we love him with everything we have. When we let our emotions be moved by his kindness, our desires shaped by his grace, knowing that like South African theologian St. Augustine says, our hearts are restless until they rest in God. We love God by trusting him with our hearts and every emotion that comes into them, every desire, by trusting them with our personalities even. Whether you're very loud or very quiet, I won't point anybody out because the quiet ones don't want you to. We love him by entrusting him with our souls, the stuff that makes us us. We love God with our bodies. When we raise hands or we kneel, when we extend our hands in love towards others, we, we use our whole strength even to communicate our trust in and dependence on God. The very thing we might be using to say, I actually can do it myself because I'm strong enough. God says, no, I want you to show your love by using that for me. We love God with our minds when we take him at his word. When we study his word. When we think creatively about ways to apply his word. When we encourage others with his word. And we, we begin to get this way of life into us. Affecting every part of us. Including our minds, bodies, souls, and hearts. But that's only the first command that the lawyer gives. He continues, love your neighbor as yourself. 
This first command that I just spent all this time explaining is all of a sudden matched up with, put alongside, and weighed at the same as another command. Love your neighbor. Mr. Lawyer Man, how do you think the law says you inherit eternal life? His answer is to love God and love neighbor. Now, here's something I think, thinking about love of neighbor, that I might submit that we struggle with today in our community, even here. We hear these commands and we reduce them to something spiritual alone, something for eternity later, something that is to be done with the end in mind and without paying much attention to the here and now. The problem, I think, is God's word, which doesn't really leave room for that. Look at the first commandment. It's pretty crystal clear that loving God is more than spiritual. It is not less than, but it is definitely more than spiritual. Otherwise, why would God bother mentioning the body, the mind, and the heart? The lawyer is quoting scripture, if you didn't know. The things Christians are so quick to dismiss when we think about loving God. I mean, it doesn't matter what I do with my body, right? Like, God's saving my soul, it's all going to burn anyways. Emotions are bad, just ignore and override. Why would you get caught up in that? Don't let your emotions take over you. Or maybe you go in the opposite direction. Why are you using your mind so much? You're going to get caught up in this intellectual pride. You'll forget you need to love Jesus too. All of these things are listed here in Scripture as avenues for, not against, loving God. Use your emotions, your hearts. Use your body and all the postures and everything. Use your mind and the way that you study and engage. Use your soul. It's more than spiritual. It's not just physical. To love God completely and truly. But this isn't just about loving God, right? We also have the same problem with the second commandment, which is why I put this uh, little sentence up on the screen. If loving God is clearly more than spiritual, why do some of us make loving neighbor only spiritual? Why do we think that caring for people's bodies, minds, and hearts are in conflict with caring for their souls? Why do we accept caring for only one-fourth of what the Bible says we should use to love God? That's like me working out with someone like Zach, who didn't know I was going to call him out on this. And I clearly don't work out with Zach. But saying that, you know, Zach, leg day doesn't matter. I'm just going to keep working on my upper body. At some point, I'm going to look like some kind of mutated bodybuilder. Huge up here walking around on chicken legs. No, we're to love God with everything we have, and we also love our neighbor as we love ourselves, caring for our bodies, minds, hearts, and souls. We don't want chicken-leg Christianity. Why? Why can I say that? Because there's something about the cross of Jesus that integrates a vertical love of God with horizontal love for others. It all comes together in this cross where the the supreme display of God's love for us, that he would take on our sin, our punishment, on himself, that he would come to earth to die for us. To take on our sin. The text actually says that Jesus became sin for us. The one who knew no sin became sin for us. And all of a sudden, his vertical love generates a two-way relationship. We love him and he loves us. But the Bible goes one step further. We love him because he first loved us. But it also transforms our relationships with each other. Because at the cross, everybody's level. Everybody's in the same boat. We all need Jesus. We're all broken sinners. I've said this before. You already know the worst thing about me. That I'm bad enough that Jesus needed to die for me. But you also already know the best thing about me. 
that I'm worth dying for, and that he loved me enough to do it. At the cross, everybody is level, and both of these love commands work together to make us into his kingdom people. Together, these commands form the lens through which we have to see the world. This is kingdom perspective stuff. This is, this is Christian worldview, the only frame of reference we have. If we have one without the other, our vision is going to have some problems. Our vision might even be crooked. There's uh, something I haven't fixed in the last few months that I brought up here to show you. I didn't intentionally do this for this reason. I have these glasses. If you don't know, I wear contacts. And I broke these glasses a few months ago, but I still try to use them because I'm cheap. But if you notice, these glasses, when I put them on, look crooked. And the problem with these glasses is that every time I try to wear them around the house, I can, I can see through the lens, but they start to, to slip off my nose. They start to dangle off my ear, and then I just get really, really frustrated because I'm missing a piece. I'm missing something that should be holding these on my face that I might see the world accurately. In the same way, when we do not hold both of these commands before us, we will slip away from kingdom living. We will lose sight of a God or we will lose sight of our neighbor. We will distort love as only for God or only for neighbor. We will twist the gospel into a message of good works alone or right belief alone. When the reality is that the gospel is a message of salvation, we believe the good news about God that leads us to live the right way with others. And Jesus actually affirms this for the lawyer. Look at the text, verse 28. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. You're looking for eternal life and it's found in loving God and loving neighbor. You're on to something here. The problem, as one theologian likes to say, is that love doesn't sound so dangerous until you've tried it. Love sounds nice, all well and good, until you actually get into it and it starts to cost you. And these two commands, to love God and love neighbor, are anything but easy. They are certainly simple, but they are not easy. And this lawyer is about to find that out. The text is clear. Love your God and love your neighbor. Love with everything you've got. But what does that even mean, Jesus? How, do I, how am I supposed to actually do this? The lawyer wants the kind of clarity that I'm asking. And so he asks Jesus another question. But Jesus, instead of responding with another question or even a to-do list, he tells a story. Which, okay, Jesus, can you get more annoying, man? Come on. I just want to know how to do this. But this story is going to do something different to us. A story about identity, a story that tells us that instead of looking for our neighbor, we need to be a neighbor. Look at the text. The lawyer, who wants to justify himself, asks Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He's kind of puffing out his chest like he's a little bit, you got praise for getting the right answers. Do this and you will live. You got it. Kind of like us, us nerds when the teacher praises us when we got the right answer. I said us nerds. Puffing on his chest, the Lord comes at Jesus with a clarifying question. He's not going to let the conversation end. He wants clarity on these commands. And I'm not sure why, but he starts with the second command, and he wants to know where the boundary markers are for defining neighbor. Jesus, if I'm supposed to love my neighbor, then, then who is my neighbor? Who do I have responsibilities for? After all, he's looking for eternal life, and he, he wants to justify himself. He wants to know if he's on the right path, if he needs to do more, or if he's already doing enough. So Jesus tells a story, a parable. Not some children's fairy tale meant to entertain or amaze, but a parable meant to provoke and convict. We've already read the story. 
But I'm going to take us through it a little bit slower so we have the full effect. You see, we need to see this parable through first century eyes before it can affect our 21st century lives. And so I want us to walk through this slowly. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, if you don't know the geography of this area, this man is traveling, traveling a dangerous road with sharp drops in elevation and filled with choke points and ambush-ready hideouts. So what happens next is actually not all that surprising. He was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him. They went, and he, they went away. They left him there, and he was half dead. The victim of a crime, this man is half dead in a ditch, helpless, and death is creeping right around the corner. But his broken body is also clear evidence that to the travelers, to anybody who's walking around, that a violent gang is also creeping around the corner. A priest happened to be going down the same road. Now, priests at this time, they, they typically served in Jerusalem for a week out of the year in the temple there. And like people who work in Chicago and live out in the burbs, this number of priests actually lived in Jericho. And so they would finish their shift in Jerusalem, and then it's time to go home. This guy's shift is up, and on his way home, he runs into a body. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, not a priest, a temple assistant, another category of holy, but still in the same ballpark. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Both of these men, they see and they pass by. The text doesn't really explain their motives. We don't really know why they passed by, but it might be helpful even as we examine our own hearts in this text to wonder, to maybe use our sanctified imaginations. Maybe these priests and these Levites are, are trying to avoid becoming unclean, touching a dead body or, or an almost dead body. The law is very clear that if that happens, they would, they would be declared defiled for seven days and they'd have to go through a, a really annoying process of purification and, and they'd have to pay for it out of their own pockets. Maybe they're being better safe than sorry. The problem is that God's law also required mercy. In fact, required mercy over purity if they were in contention. God's law required these religious leaders to help someone in need if they came across them, whatever that might entail. God's law also required if they came across a dead body to bury a neglected corpse to show dignity to that body. In other words, this priest and this Levite had to help no matter what, according to God's law. But maybe it wasn't about purity. Maybe they were just rushing to get home like our experiment. Right? They didn't have time. They're rushing to get out of there. Maybe they were afraid that the, the robbers would come back. I mean, they didn't know how long this man had been here. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. referenced the story in one sermon, and he confronted this fear, and he says, the question of the Levite and the priest was, what will happen to me if I stop to help this man? But then he contrasts, and he says, the question of the Samaritan, who we'll get to, was, what will happen to this man if I don't stop to help him? Dr. King concludes, ultimately, the thing that determines whether a man is a Christian, whether a person is a Christian, is how he answers this question. I'm just speculating, but at least here in the middle of the story with this kind of maybe this is what's happening here, we're confronted with two different reasons that we might tend to wrestle with for not helping someone in need, either misplaced laws or rightly placed fear. God is clear in his law and in all of his word that the law of love supersedes the love of law. The commands of love determine the way we live out our righteousness. 
Righteousness, holiness, purity, they are not the determining factors of our lives. Love is, and righteousness serves love too, not the other way around. But I'll admit, fear is real, and fear needs to be confronted, not denied or downplayed, but faced head on. After all, like I quoted earlier, love doesn't sound so dangerous until you've tried it. And still Jesus calls us to love with everything we've got. And he gives us an unexpected character to demonstrate that. The Samaritan, Dr. King, contrasted with the Levi and the priest. Look at verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. Did you see what just happened? You guys didn't have an audible gasp, so I'll rewind the story and explain what just happened. It's stories like these in parables. There's a certain order to the examples that are typically used. This Jewish New Testament professor, Amy Jill Levine, explains that parables have these, this rule of threes. Priest, Levite, Israelite. And this rule of three reflected the social categories at this time. And Dr. Levine illustrates it with two examples that I'm quoting her and going to say. And, and this is the moment in the sermon, because I've heard a few amens, but I need a little bit more participation. This is the moment where I'm going to ask you to actually say something. Amen? And so I want you to complete these modern day versions of the rule of three. Are you ready? Larry, Mo. Good, one for one. Father, son, Holy Ghost would have been better, but we'll let it slide. This is the rule of threes. We know what's supposed to come next. They know what's supposed to come next. Priest, Levite, Samaritan. But Jesus is setting them up for a setup, a twist, something different. The equivalent, Dr. Levine says, of saying Larry, Moe, Hitler. Father, son, Satan. Jesus is deliberately picking someone that is not only other, but is enemy. He centers a hostility that is centuries old. I'll illustrate it. There's one episode that's actually in the previous chapter of our text this morning. In chapter 9, at the end of Luke 9, the disciples are going on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus. But they want to stop somewhere to rest. And so Jesus sends a few messengers ahead to prepare a spot for them in this Samaritan village. But the messengers run into a problem. The Samaritans are refusing to show Jesus and his disciples hospitality. And how did the disciples respond in that story? The text says that two of Jesus' closest disciples turn to Jesus and ask him the question, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy these Samaritans? Their, their, their finger is on the nuclear button and their, their itchy trigger fingers is asking Jesus, can I press the button? Jesus has to de-escalate the situation. He has to explain that divine wrath isn't the way to deal with bad hospitality, bad manners. But this is what things were like between Samaritans and Jews. So Jesus, ever the provocative teacher, doesn't follow the rules and goes priest, Levite, Samaritan. Turns everything upside down in this story. When the Samaritan saw the man, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, which basically means he's paying for room and board for about two weeks for this guy. And he says, look after him. When I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. The Samaritan shows this guy complete compassion. 
He sees the man and instead of passing by, takes pity on him, approaches him, goes to him and gives him first aid, drives him to a safe place, pays for extended help, and even plans a follow-up. The Samaritan risks his life. He does not rush past. He gets down into the ditch and he personally involves himself in this man's life out of compassion. So Jesus then asked the lawyer a pretty embarrassing question. Embarrassing because this man who has been concerned with boundaries is now being confronted with someone outside of those boundaries that has just smashed those boundaries with compassion. And so Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replies, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The expert wants to know how far he needs to go to love neighbor, and Jesus takes the conversation in a completely different direction. You see, Jesus doesn't allow us to set boundaries on our obedience. For Jesus, holiness and obedience and righteousness is not about a list. It is about a life. A life that is lived for God. A life that doesn't look for boundaries, but looks for the broken, the hurting, the lost, and goes to them in compassion and love. You see, Jesus is here rejecting the attempt to define the object of love and deciding instead to redefine the subject of love. In other words, Jesus is turning a noun into a verb. Did you catch that? Not who is my neighbor, but who was a neighbor. Who was being a neighbor. And in Jesus' story, the definition of neighbor does not allow for any kind of label of non-neighbor to anybody. Jesus has saved us to be a neighbor to anyone in need. Anyone that needs mercy. Remember the context of this story. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Unfortunately, this parable has become an example of either trying to work our way to eternal life by good deeds, or ignoring the reality of eternal life working its way out through our lives. Acts of mercy are not the way to eternal life. They are the evidence that we are on the way to eternal life. They are not the cause of salvation, but they are evidence of salvation. Which is why God, all over his scripture, ties love for him to love for neighbor. I've done this before, I'm going to do it again, and I'm going to get, i got to slow down my speech when I do this, but I'm going to walk through the scriptures and talk about mercy in the Old and New Testament. You ready? You ready? All right, in the Old Testament, over and over again, God connects showing mercy to others as an evidence of and a requirement of life with him. Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. A few chapters later in 1917, we read, Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. In the prophet Hosea, God tells his people, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. In Micah 6.8, a passage that we're actually going to sing back to God here at the end of our service, the prophet Micah says this, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. But God's emphasis on mercy and loving our neighbor doesn't just stop in the Old Testament. It goes all the way into the New Testament. As an outworking of the gospel of Jesus, we read the second commandment in Luke 10 all over the place. Romans 10, 9 through 10, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be, that's Paul writing that, I didn't, that's not my commentary. Whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. 
Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. In Galatians 5.14, we read the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. In James 2.8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. This isn't about doing right in order to be right before God. It's about doing right because we have been made right before God. Sometimes in our churches, we disconnect what we do from who we are, but the Bible refuses to let us do that. We have been shown mercy, and God calls us to show mercy to others, to take care of people in the ditch because love and compassion is more important than the risks involved. Let me be extra clear here. Doing these acts of mercy is not the gospel. Being good and helping out, serving in the food pantry, stopping to buy someone a meal, giving blood, volunteering at a shelter, none of that makes you right before God. It is not the gospel. The good news that our debt of sin between us and God is paid by Jesus and we can be in relationship with God again and that he is making everything right. But, and I need you to hear me on this, these acts of mercy are a necessary implication of and outworking of the gospel. Like miracles in the gospel accounts where the, the Bible actually calls them signs, acts of mercy, justice, they're also road signs. They point forward to the kingdom. They're previews of the kingdom of God when God will come and make everything right. They are heaven coming to earth, breaking in and changing everything. They are witnesses, signposts that declare the kingdom of God is coming, that God is making everything right. But the gospel is not about life made right here. The gospel is about life made right forever. Like Jared Wilson writes in his chapter on the parables, on this particular parable, social justice is not the gospel, but it is the Christian living as if that gospel message is true. The goal is not to make the poor financially stable or to give the sick access to health care. The goal is to introduce the poor and the sick and everyone to Jesus. But financial stability, physical and mental health, safety and security, these are all tastes of heaven. Testimonies to grace. An opportunity to love and serve others. If you've been reading your Bible for a while, you'll at some point come across a command of God to care for the widow and the orphan, to love and serve the most vulnerable among us, whether they're Christian or not, because when we do that, we actually communicate his love to them. But just like that love is never restricted to just the spiritual, we also never stop at just the physical. It all matters. Now, I'm going to bring this to bear upon here and now because I've just been talking about a bunch of theology and about what scriptures are saying. So I want to bring some of that into the here and now, just not being in the then and there. In 2018, in the U.S., 42%, that's almost half, of households could not afford basic necessities like housing, childcare, food, transportation, healthcare, taxes. In that 42%, 13 of that, and I'm not talking about percentages, 42 minus 29 13, were living below the federal poverty line. 29% were designated as ALICE, which if you haven't heard that term before, it means acid-limited, income-constrained, but employed. It's a designation for households that are above the federal poverty line, but below the cost of living in their county. And you can actually Google these specific stats for Streamwood and the township that we're involved in to kind of see and hear what that's all about. There are a bunch more stats I can share. I'm not trying to share all of these to, to guilt or anything. I'm sharing these to bring you to the Jericho Road and open your eyes to the people that are lying in the ditch that call our neighborhoods home, that live in, in Streamwood and the surrounding villages, 
families, actual physical neighbors around us right now struggling to make ends meet, to figure out how to keep their job while piecing together or trying to afford childcare. Do you know how much childcare costs? Trying to put food on the table, a roof over their head, get to and from work and daycare and keep it all together, praying that they don't get into an accident on the way that's going to keep them from work or maybe even make them lose their job. People who go to work in unsafe conditions because they have no choice. These are stories, but more than that, they are image bearers who because of a combination of, yes, personal responsibility and also bad situations are lying in a ditch on the side of the road on the way to Jericho. And this provocative parable won't let us pass by. The question for us, TVC, is what does it mean to be a neighbor here in Streamwood? When those numbers have faces that we see every day, what does it mean to show mercy? Now listen, I don't have all the answers. In fact, the Bible is a little complicated because it doesn't give a whole lot of specifics about how to do this. But what the Bible won't let us do is get away with not showing mercy at all. The question is not if, but how. And if you've known me for any period of time, my first suggestion to answering that question is the foundation of this sermon series and the thing that I sort of apologize for because I, I do it for too long during a Sunday service, and it's prayer. My prayer is that we would be people of mercy here and now. My desire is that we would start by praying to God to change our hearts and direct us towards others. That he would help us love like he loved us, to reject fear, but be wise and caring for those that are in the ditch, remembering that we were also in the ditch. And that he came down to us and cared for us when we didn't deserve it. But I'm going to get a little bit more specific here, and this is meant just as a start, not an end. And this is me submitting something to say, hey, think about this. Maybe learning from the hero that Jesus puts in this story, this Samaritan, maybe we can see behind that Samaritan the way that God actually operates. Because if you uh, know the gospel message, you'll see some of the things that the Samaritan does. That's what Jesus does. Because mercy starts by getting close. How can we be a neighbor when we separate ourselves from the broken? And Jesus himself took on flesh and came to us. It matters. We need to actually move towards the broken like Jesus moved towards us so that we can see the broken like the Samaritan saw this man. Over and over again, we even read last week, Jesus sees people and has compassion on them. The Samaritan sees, why do you think, parables don't have miscellaneous details. Why do you think it says that it sees the man? But Jesus didn't just have compassion he also let it travel through his hands and was part of fixing the broken. Now, you might say, well, Jesus is God, man. He, he can heal people. Well, I don't know if you know this, but Jesus put his Holy Spirit in his people and left them on earth that they might actually do what he did and continue his work. Whatever that looks like. This Samaritan helped fix the broken. He actually got his hands dirty. We enter into broken situations with people because they're worth it. They bear God's image. They need restoration just as much as we did. The Samaritan also gave generously. If you didn't notice, he gives not just his time, but his finances, his resources. He puts the guy on his own donkey and walks. Jesus often stopped, if you read the gospel accounts too, at the worst times. Like, Jesus, we're trying to get somewhere. And he just stops and he's like, well, someone touched me. Man, we're in a crowd. Everybody touched you. But he stopped. 
to speak to a woman that reached out to him, to tell her that her sins were forgiven, to heal her. Now, a Samaritan doesn't actually just drop off the man and just be like, hey, your problem now. He promises to come back. And just like Jesus, he saw this all the way through to the end. Compassion is complicated. It's involved. Love doesn't sound so dangerous until you've tried it. But God loved us by sending his son to die for us. And part of showing that same mercy that we have received is following in his dangerous footsteps and entrusting ourselves and the people we love to him. Because he calls us to love with everything we've got. Now notice, I didn't say anything specific here. None of this says, TVC, let's go do X, Y, Z. These are all postures that the scriptures commend to us in this story that show us in the gospel that ask you how creative are you going to be in showing mercy because you don't get an option on whether or not you do. But even as I say all this, I want to make sure we understand mercy is is just as corporate as it is personal. And I realize that I chose the wrong word when I put corporate up there because it's not about business. When I say corporate, I mean body. Mercy is not just for individuals, it's also for our whole church. So in addition to the guidelines that I just gave that come out of this text, there are a few specific things that I think our church should do in order to show mercy. And one of those is praying. I really and truly mean that. When we pray at our prayer night, this is part of what we're going to be praying about. Lord, how are you calling us to show mercy in this community? This is what I'm praying for us as we consider what Jesus is calling us to in this next season. How are we going to be neighbors? But not only prayer, we also are, are trying to actually step into this wisely. And so out of prayer, we talk about study. Now, we know what everybody needs spiritually. The Bible tells us what that is, right? What does everybody need spiritually? The gospel. We all need to be saved from our sins. But all the specific ways that the kingdom is restoring what is broken here in this community requires us to actually find out what is broken, and not just thinking we know. And so part of it is studying. What does this community actually need as it relates to physical and mental and emotional help? But then after study, we actually don't just stop there, which for a guy that reads a bajillion books, I like to just sit there and study everything. The next thing is we actually have to activate. We actually have to do something. We have to actually be merciful. Our acts of mercy, they become signposts of heaven, and so we need to actually do this. But we don't do this alone. We do this with other new creation outposts that are out here, so we collaborate. This is what I'm praying for. And again, none of the specifics. You might be like, all right, Eric, I want your five-point plan. I want to jump on. Let's do this. This is going to take time, and I want us to get there. But we do all of this. I'm just going to be extra clear here. We do all of this because these acts of mercy are signposts of heaven. I want to get ready for what God is calling us into. Being people of mercy is part of what God has been calling us into since Jesus said, go and do likewise. Kingdom people are those who both remember mercy and have mercy, who love God and love their neighbor, who read this parable and see in it the path to eternal life. Not because compassion and mercy are tasks for us to do in order to inherit eternal life, but because they are what Jesus showed us on the cross when he died for us. He saved us. We didn't deserve it. Like, you guys get that? We were the victims on the side of the road, but we were also the band of robbers. Titus 3 reminds us that we were hated and hating one another. And yet he saved us. 
He had mercy, and now we follow him in that mercy. We love with everything we've got. We love God because he first loved us. We love others because he first loved us. Love that has no limits is complicated, it's messy, it's dangerous, but it has the taste of eternal life in it. Both for the one who loves and the one who is loved. Instead of looking for neighbors, my prayer is that we would be neighbors, the neighbors that God made us to be. Would you pray that with me? God, this morning we come before you in humility. We remember what it took to save us. Remember that you showed us mercy. You brought us healing when we were on the side of the road, both when we were victims lying in blood and when we were robbers lying in wait. We did not deserve to be saved, and yet you saved us. We did not deserve mercy, and yet you showed it. You removed our guilt and our punishment. You were gracious. You blessed us with every good gift. You have filled us with your Holy Spirit. You've empowered us to be part of your saving work, communicating your love and your compassion to others. Lord, you command love for a neighbor and love for you. And so we pray this morning that you would help us to obey out of our gratitude for your salvation. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 that convinced in the death and resurrection of Jesus for us and all who believe that the love of Christ compels us. And so we pray that we would be a community compelled by the love of Jesus to preach the gospel in word and in deed. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.